0: you are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman.
1: And I'm Neil Lawrence.
0: And Neil, we are again taping an episode in front of a live audience, digitally recorded though on on Talking Machines. And if you want to be part of our live studio audience, big quotes, you can follow us on Twitter at T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S or hit us up on thetalkingmachines at gmail.com. And our guest today for this interview on Talking Machines is Dr. Terrence Sanowski. Dr. Sanowski, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I really appreciate it.
2: Uh, Great to be here.
0: So we ask all of our guests the same question first. How did you get where you are? What's been your academic and industrial journey? You're also very involved in the Nurep's conference. Tell us everything.
2: (laughs) Well, uh, a wise man once told me that careers are only made retrospectively, and I have no idea how I got here. There was no plan. It went through a sequence of stages, starting with graduate school at Princeton in theoretical physics, and from there, when I finished that, I for reasons that uh, have to do with the field of physics at the time, which was a little bit moribund, I went into neuroscience. So that was uh, postdoc. And then from there, uh, that's when I met Jeffrey Hinton and that changed my life because we uh, I met him at a small seminar uh, here in San Diego in 1979. We hit it off and uh, from that, over the next few years, you know, blossomed the you know the Bolson machine and backprop, and
1: you know the rest was history. So Terry, who, who were you talking with? Were you postdocing in San Diego?
2: No, no. This was uh, a postdoc at Harvard Medical School in the Department of Neurobiology with Stephen Kuffler, who was widely considered to be the founder of modern neurobiology, and uh, it was an experimental postdoc I actually recorded from neurons. So, but
1: 79, you're mentioning physics, it was a little bit moribund. I mean, in terms of connectionist modeling, that was also a, a very quiet period. There wasn't a lot going on. It was a sort of age of classical AI, right?
2: You're absolutely right. It, <laughs> this was, uh, in fact, it was a neural network winter, the 70s, uh, and it was primarily because of the uh, failure of the Perceptron. Now, that's because you say failure of the Perceptron, I read about that
1: a lot. Do, do you think it really did fail, or was the, the Minsky paper a little, what, what it, the Minsky book, sorry, the Paput Minsky book sort of killed
2: it, but was it a fair representation? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, th- I think that that's the myth, you know, that that book killed it, but I actually think that uh, there were other things going on, and well, and Rosenblatt had died as well, which
1: seems a pretty significant.
2: Yes, well, he he was a pioneer, but you have to understand that digital computers were really primitive back then. You know that even the most expensive, you know, the biggest computers that you could buy don't have the power of your wristwatch today. Rosenblatt actually had to build an analog device, a million dollars, you know, million, you know in today's dollars to build an analog device that had potentiometers that were driven by motors you know for the weights that was the learning wasn't it
1: potentiometers yeah
2: because the, you know digital computers uh, were good at logic but they were terrible at doing uh, floating point it's amazing so he built that at cornell right that's right yeah uh, so funded by the onr in any case by by the time that uh, we were getting started computers it was the vax era it was becoming possible to do simulations. Uh, You know, they were small scale by today's standards, but but it really meant we could explore in a way that Frank Rosenblatt couldn't.
1: So what you're saying around the... Perceptron, and and so just for a bit of
2: context, Perceptron sixty one is that right? It was fifty nine, I think, was the book. But you know, it was in that era of early sixties, yeah.
1: And so then there's this period where the digital computer actually wasn't powerful enough to do much, and then digital kind of overtook, and the ability. But these analog machines were, were just now impractical from a point of view of expense. So you're saying it's less the book and more of a shift to the digital machine that in those early days, wasn't powerful enough to simulate the perceptron.
2: Yeah. So I I have, you know, I have a feeling that history will show that AI was like the blind man looking under the lamppost for his keys. And uh, someone came along and said, where did you lose your keys? Uh, He said, well, somewhere else, but this is the only place where I can see.
1: (laughs) I I was reading a Donald Mackay quote. I recently, um, at the beginning of his book about the eye, which is just a fascinating area, and he, I guess he spent a lot of his career on it, and he did work in in the war on radar, and he was talking about the Ratio Club, which is these early cyberneticists, and the potential of the analog or the digital computer to be what represented the brain, and in his perspective was. he he was sure it wasn't a digital computer and he wasn't sure it was an analog computer either. And he thought it was kind of somewhere in between, but it feels like that in between is what you're saying is that that was the the difficult bit to look and, and perhaps a place that we're
2: able to look now. That's right. I, you know, it's, uh, I think it's being driven, and this is true all science that what you can understand is, is really uh, determined by the tools that you have for uh, making measurements, for doing simulations. And it's really only this modern era that has given us enough tools, both to make progress with understanding how the brain works, and also with AI, because of the fact that we have a, a tremendous amount of power now. But, you know, just to go back to that early era, I think, you know, I once asked Alan Newell, you know, who was at Carnegie Mellon, and it was a time when Jeff Hinton was an assistant professor there, and I was at Johns Hopkins, and I, you know, he was at the first fifty-six meeting at Dartmouth, you know, where AI was born. And I, and I said, you know, well, why was it that you didn't look at the brain and for for inspiration? And he said, well, we did, but there wasn't very much known about the brain at the time to help us out, so we just had to make do it on our own. And he's right; that was uh, an era. Of, you know, the the fifties was kind of the the beginning of. What We now uh, understand about the signals in the brain, action potentials, synaptic potentials. So, you know, in a sense, what, what he was saying was that we basically used the tools we had available at the time, which was basically computers. But what they were good at, what were they good at? They were good at logic, at rules, uh, binary programming. So that, you know, that was, um, in a sense, they were forced to do that. That's a
1: really... I want to come back to 1979 in a moment, but there's there's an interesting context to that because, of course, Wiener initially was someone who spread across both these areas of Norbert Wiener, who was at MIT, founded cybernetics, spread across both these areas of the analog and digital. He did his PhD thesis on Russell and Whitehead's book. But one thing I was reading about recently is there was a big falling out between Vina and McCulloch and Pitts. And it's sort of interesting that Vina wasn't there at the AI meeting in 56. And I sometimes wonder, was that more about personalities and, and wanting the sort of old guard to stay away? Because you always feel
2: Veena was someone who, who bridged these worlds. You know, that, that's a the fascinating story. I, I actually wrote a review of a book about Warren McCulloch and, and that came up. They were friends. They actually had had been friends. Yeah, it, it has something to do with uh, their wives.
1: Uh, yeah, I think the lifestyle of McCulloch was uh, not in line with, um, it's a sad story. But, but, but I guess the point you're making, which I think is, and I'd like us to take us back to 79 and the meeting with Jeff, is and I think that that's true. Despite this story between humans, the real factor that drove things then was the sudden availability of increasing cheap digital compute, and no longer the need to do this work that Rosenblatt and Mackay and others had done of having to wire together a bunch of analog circuits that you couldn't reprogram to uh, build a system.
2: Yeah, that, I think that was a dead end it, it, for the very reason you gave, which is that you know you it's a special purpose. Device that isn't good for anything else, and and really, if you're trying to explore, you need the flexibility of being able to try out many ideas, and that's and that really is uh, what digital simulation allows you to do. You so you were there in
1: '79. So by the time. So what was the picture like in this era in 79? That seems like a critical period. You had the
2: VAX. You had personal
1: machines now, in effect, or, or personal-ish machines.
2: So interesting story. My first job was at Johns Hopkins University, and I was lucky enough to be awarded the Presidential Science Award, Young Investigator Award, from you know, the the government. And along with that was a grant, basically, and it was also matching, so I had to get matching funds. But because of that, I was able to purchase... Ridge computers two rich computers which had the power of vac 780s all to myself and for a while i had more power computing power than the entire computer science department you at were Hopkins. the google of 1979 <laughs> that's right <laughs> that's right but it, it really you needed it because we we, we were doing you know round the clock simulations uh that was the era of net talk, which made a big splash and it was tell us about net talk because it's a it's a I, I know what an
1: inspiration it was to to people who were an inspiration to me. So tell us more about NetTalk. What
2: was NetTalk? Well, it it arose from a visit I made to Princeton and a graduate student, Charlie Rosenberg, who was working with George Miller, who's a very eminent cognitive scientist, language area, and and so Charlie was really enthusiastic about neural networks, and he asked if he could ha- come do a summer project. So I said, sure. And, you know, he was studying language, so he's, he wanted to do a, a language network. And, you know, we cast around for a problem that, you know, you, you know a small network might be able to make some progress on.
1: What were the architectures available? What year is this, and what were the architectures available? Uh,
2: it was 85, I think summer of 85, and it was, you know, at that time it was really interesting because when I visited Princeton, we were doing Bolson machines, but by the time that he showed up, Jeff had, with Dave Rumelhardt I had just broken through with Backprop, which was an order of magnitude faster. So it meant we could simulate a much bigger network. Well, the problem we picked out was in phonology, which is how do you pronounce words? And we, 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 I remember going to the library and there was a 250-page book with, filled with rules and exceptions to the rules and rules for the exceptions, you know, because English is a very irregular language and there are a lot of different uh, influences.
1: And that notion was kind of driven by logic. That was the approach to language. Let's break language down into its like, lo- which was the flavor of the decade, double decade.
2: Yeah, no, no, that was the era of Chomsky and syntax. And it, it was clear that, you know, it, it, rule-based descriptions of something as irregular as English was really complex. And I actually remember Jeff visiting during that summer and telling us that we were crazy that this is much too difficult a problem. It's a real world problem and that we should... This is pronunciation. So, so y- yes. you were going to build a neural network to look at text and right.
1: try and pronounce from That's text. That's right. Text to pro- well, you know, speech.
2: Text to speech is the problem. Is yeah. it the world's first text to speech system? No, no, no. Uh, in fact, there were systems that are out there. We bought Dec Talk actually, which allowed us to actually hear the output of NetTalk, which made it come alive. To make a long story short... By the end of the summer, the biggest problem was finding a database. And so we ended up with a database. Carteret and Jones had done some transcription of, of real people talking. And, and on one side of the page was the uh, the transcription of the words. And on the other side was the transcription of the sounds of every letter in the word. And so we, we did, digitized that and we fed it in to a small network by today's standards, maybe 10, 20,000 weights and a few hundred units. We had a window of seven letters and we marched the words through the window one letter at a time. And then there were like 20, you no, know, maybe a hundred hidden units and then one output unit, which was the sound of the middle letter. And it was phenomenal because it, when we started it, uh, the first thing it had picked up on was the difference between vowels and consonants. That's the biggest uh, regularity. But it sounded like this: ba ba ga ga da 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 da, like a babbling baby, which was really very cute. But then, about uh, you know maybe a, a three or four hours later, you could begin hearing small words, and then by the end of the uh, session, it was actually you could you could understand it, and it was it was like um you know really dramatic in a sense that it, it kind of spoke for itself, you didn't have to give numbers because you know you you could listen for yourself, and and this was a big this is eighty five summer of eighty five September. Yeah, I think that was a summer of eighty because we we, we we think we had our paper in eighty six,
1: and and so the, and the PDP book came out the same year. So this is the book where back propagation came out eighty six. Let's go back a little bit because you mentioned the Boltzmann machine, and and also you know what had happened from seventy nine up to the launch of Backprop. I mean, so by, I, I think the launch of that book and NetTalk itself, that triggered the first neural network wave, which is how I got drawn into the community. But what about the the neural network early spring from 79, which you were very much a part of with, with the Boltzmann machine? What was
2: going on in those years? There were a, a series of small workshops and, you know, uh, there were people who, some of the pioneers, you know, let me describe one of them. It took place at a small resort outside of Pittsburgh, and uh, or Jeff organized it. I, re- I remember really clearly. I met Carver Mead for the first time, who's a uh, you know a famous computer scientist. You know, he's uh, responsible, f- you know, in our field for analog VLSI, uh, neuromorphic engineering, but in-, in computer science, he he wrote the first uh, silicon compiler, which allowed engineers, you know, to write a program to build a chip, basically. But in in any case, (laughs) the drama, we were in the basement, you know, with small little room with 20 people. Uh, Jeff was there. And I think, you know, Jay McClelland, you know, I think Dave Rummelhart, Feldman from Rochester, Dana Ballard. In any case, uh, you know, we were gradually making progress. But I remember up above us, there was a big convention. It was a supercomputer convention, you know, Cray, control data, you know, these were hundred million dollar machines and, and they had these big boots, uh, unbelievable. And I remember Carver Mead laughing and saying that, you know, they don't know it yet, but they're dinosaurs. They're going to go extinct. And I, 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 I kind of chuckled and, and you were the furry mammals downstairs. Yeah. And, and right. At, well, it wasn't, you know, he, I, he, he elucidated, he said, the micros are going to eat their lunch. Because he knew about scaling, about the fact that when you have a commodity product, that the things and Moore's Law, by the way, he coined the term Moore's Law. It wasn't Moore, obviously. He, he, he came up with the data, you know, with Intel, but it was actually the actual Moore's Law, the name of it came from Carver. And he knew that because he worked out the fundamental physics, device physics, and he understood that there's room at the bottom. He yeah. was at Caltech. Well, that's the Feynman, Feynman quote, isn't it? That- that's right, Feynman, and, and they they taught a course together, by the way, which was kind of like a, a vision of what the world's going to be like in the twenty first century, and they were right on. There's plenty of room at the bottom. It. Yeah, and, and but but you know, just think how upset they'd be when they see what we have done with it, anyway. But what, what was <laughs> what was so Carver was dead right about it, and he also said something very interesting, which is that. Digital computers are great for doing simulations, but you're never going to deliver into the field things with enough computing power. And so that's why uh, the brain, for example, isn't a digital computer because it would have to be the size of uh, a small city. (laughs) You know
1: these, you know these big. Uh, and this is why he went for neuromorphic engineering, yes. right? So, yeah, founder of that field where they use the analog region, and it's a lot lower power. That's
2: right. It's it's all about power. If you want to deliver, say, power, uh, computing power to a robot, right? You just can't have a supercomputer sitting there. You have to have something that is a very, very efficient, but massive. You know, doing massive computations. And and interestingly, we're we're just entering that era now. You know, there's a very special purpose. Uh, machine learning chips that are, are being are coming online, you know, TensorFlow and TPUs and a lot of these other chips. Uh there there's like at least a hundred machine learning chip startups. But now I've been I was the founder of a meeting neuromorphic engineering me- workshop that was has been held at Telluride for the last 25 years. And now that field is beginning to come into its own. And in, in fact some of my recent research Is showing how you could transfer a deep learning network, which uses continuous rate-coded neurons, model neurons, to spiking neurons, and then from that you can then load it into a chip. So this just
1: for context, neuromorphic engineering, which is so cool. They sort of have little, they implement little analog models of the neuron on the processor, and though, but those are spiking models, so they're not the sort of cartoon model that we use in artificial neural networks, they actually spike, don't they? And, and you're saying that you can take the trained cartoon neural network model from a sort of machine, like IntensorFlow or whatever else, and map that to a neuromorphic implementation, which is a spiking neuron. There's a deep sort of noise they make. Sorry, that's my impression of a neuron. Probably not a very good impression.
2: Yes, we just re- we're just at the cusp where where we've at least demonstrated proof of concept and now it's uh, there, uh, Intel is building Loehi, which is a big spiking chip. By the way, you know, it's interesting. You were talking earlier about, you know, is the brain digital or analog? And it is a hybrid because it uses membrane potentials to do all of the low power analog computing. But then in order to communicate, it uses uh, spiking, uh, which is an all or none digital like. Event, But then the rate codes have some
1: analog nature to that as well. It's a sort of – it, that's even hybrid, right? Uh, well,
2: it's interesting. It's, uh, it is. If you talk to systems neuroscientists, of course, that's the signal that they record are the uh, spikes averaged over 100 milliseconds, you know, in, in binned. We know there's a rate code there. But uh, the spikes are actually asynchronous, which means that the, you can carry additional information in the timing of the spike. And and we're just beginning to appreciate how that's done in, in large scale networks. You you've covered I mean, I,
1: I just think we could have we could have like an entire separate podcast on Talking Terry because you have seen so many things. But the context of before so the Cray oh, by, era. By the workshop. way, can, can I
2: can I interrupt you for a yeah, moment? Sure. You, you you mentioned Don McKay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Don
1: McKay, just context wise, his he he yeah, well you're
2: maybe about to say this. You go ahead. Go ahead, Terry. Uh, no. So no, this is a wonderful story. I mean, this 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 is I almost forgot this, but you you're bringing it up reminded me. So in the middle of NetTalk, I got a a little package from David McKay, his son, and he was an undergraduate at Cambridge at the time, and he implemented NetTalk, you know, with his in local computing, and he sent me his results, and it was in. A, a, a small handwriting on a, like a three by four inch pad. And I still have this. I mean, this is, you know, Dave McKay who became a giant in the field, right? Information theory and, you know, died uh, tragically. But, you know, he, he, you know, I think that we inspired some of the brightest people on the planet to sort of jump in, including you. Oh, uh, I, I think, uh, David and me can't be mentioned in the same paragraph.
1: <laughs> 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 David was my inspiration and Ryan's my predecessor as a co-host. But, but I think what you're sort of, what I love about these stories is I know how much NetTalk was an inspiration for him. I mean, his fad, father, as you said, Don McKay, you know I dug out a little story. Donald Mackay was invited to the Dartmouth workshop in 56, but didn't go. Now, I think the reason he didn't go was because Robert Mackay, David's older brother, was born that summer, I'm guessing. And and I, I often think about that because Donald Mackay was another person who, as you say, thought about the brain as this hybrid system. Shannon, I think, was there. And Shannon would have been someone, I think, who could have definitely gone the logical way. But you sort of sometimes wonder what would have been... I, I think you're probably right, but it's a little, you know, that it's actually just about the hardware. It's just a little game I play with my head. Is I wonder what would happen if Don McKay was there as well.
2: You, you know, the, uh, in addition to that workshop, there was another series of meetings that were held at the same time, the Hosea Macy Conferences. And uh, the similar cast of characters, you know, uh, Wiener and uh, I think Shannon was there, but also included people like Margaret Mead, anthropologist, Gerard, Ralph Gerard, and when I was a graduate student in the long summers in Princeton, which was very hot and muggy, I was reading these uh, conferences and and it was a the books were, were coming out, which was a you know a transcription of the of the exact this discussion that they were having, not just, you know, chapters, but discussion. And it was fascinating to hear how each one of them came to this field. And Warren McCulloch was like a kind of ringleader who kind of organized it. One of the big disappointments of my life when I came to the end of these conferences, because I was expecting, well, what's the next, what's going to happen next? And they were in the 50s and and, um, and extending into the 60s. And and it just disappeared. It was like, you know, poof. And everybody went their own way. And, and but I really,
1: am, I'm super interested in your interpretation, which I think is a really sensible one, that basically... You know, the digital computer came into existence, and there was a whole load of stuff you could suddenly do on this machine. That may not be the brain, but it was pretty cool anyway. And there's this sort of era of conversation, which, when you go back and look at it, I think we're just getting back to today in terms of. I mean, if you look at the success of ideas that came from cybernetics, like the theory of automatic control, which, but they, they, you don't see their history in cybernetics. I feel that there's this tenuous thread which we've been exploring between the machine learning community, what was the connectionist, the neural network community, and cybernetics. I think it's a thread that goes through time. And one of the things I think is fascinating about your career is you were someone who came in and were inspired to grab onto that thread. As you say, because you felt physics was a little bit moribund, but not half as moribund as connectionist
2: uh, neural networks were at the time. <laughs> I see. Well, you know, it, it, youth is very ambitious and risk-taking. You know, that was the era. Jeff and I were absolutely convinced, you know, that this is the future. And even though we were the furry little mammals that, you know, we would inherit the earth, you know, how naive we were. <laughs> well, and and how
1: much work does it take? And actually something, there's so many things I could ask you about. But I want to go and ask you about something that you've not just been influential on the technical side, inspiring people like David Mackay to come into the field. I want to ask you, first of all, about Ed Posner. Tell us a little bit about how Ed Posner came into this scene and and what your relationship was with him. Because I think many people won't have have heard of him. And he's he's a critical character in this story, right?
2: Yes. Well, uh, as you know, Ed Posner was the founder of the Neural Information Processing Systems conference and foundation, uh, which I inherited from him after he died from a tragic bicycle accident he, that got hit by a truck. But he was a very wonderful character. He had great sense of humor, but he was also very practical. He was an engineer. He was at JPL. He had a faculty position at Caltech in electrical engineering. And uh, what he re- recognized in the early days of neural networks, this is when it started becoming popular again, that was in the eighties. Uh, he, he you know, we had we were having small meetings at Snowbird, but it became clear that more people wanted to come that we didn't have enough room. So he said we gotta have a meeting where it's not by invitation, but you know, anybody could can register to
1: come. So the Snowbird meetings, just just because they're the source, they people may not know the full history. Tell us the Snowbird meetings, that's in Snowbird is in Colorado. In Utah. In that Utah. was a ski
2: resort, actually. It's
1: a ski resort. And there were small workshops of the type that you were just commenting with the Cray people above, where you just bring a few people together on an invitational basis.
2: Yeah, it, that, that's right. It was basically a logical extension, but you know, it had gotten up to several hundred people at that point, And we, we overran the resort. But what he did was arrange for uh, a bigger venue in Denver. It was a Denver tech center. And what what he was really good at? Okay, so when you're starting a meeting like that, there's a lot of upfront expenses. You have to somebody has to sign for the contract, which you can you know you are liable for. And he managed to get the IEEE Information Theory Society to front us. In other words, for the first couple of meetings, they were they were the sponsors, and uh, and that was great because you know we were that way. We we felt that we were safe. And uh, but it started taking off, and then and at that point the uh, the International Neural Network Society was founded, and the IEEE Neural Networks, and so it was a period of great growth uh, of of you know going from a small. There's a
1: critical decision there because this is fascinating to me because I don't think people truly understand this, but one of the strengths of our community is that we had our own foundation that ran our own conference, which gave us independence of decision making that allowed us to decide that we didn't want large conference fees or we wanted to publish in open ways. We were never beholden to any of the professional institutions which had these stipulations about how their conferences should be run, where things should be published. And what you just said is, is really important because you're saying for the first two years, it was IEEE information theory. So why then form the foundation? The easy decision would have been to say, hey, IEEE, you know, why don't you just assimilate us? And then the whole history of machine learning could have been very different. So there's a critical decision to say, actually, we're going to form our own foundation and it's going to be a light touch thing that that just supports the conference.
2: You know, I wish that Ed was still alive so I can ask him that question. Uh, You know, I don't really know what his insight was. You're right. That was a critical moment. And, and by the way, you know, you're absolutely right about IEEE. Uh, although it's, you know, it is the largest uh, professional society. I just recently looked it up. It's like half a million people around the world. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. But uh, you know, those early days of the what was formerly called NIPS were magical because we were a community of a, I think the first meeting were 600 people. But we were a relatively small community for many, many years. It grew up linearly, very slowly, over decades. And it was some of the best times of my life was going to those meetings because of the fact there was so much energy. You know, the poster sessions would go to 2 a.m. We f- formed lifelong bonds because th- these were people. You know, bonds that, that, by the way, I think a
1: critical... In these moments of turmoil, like I keep seeing those bonds being important for dealing with moments of stress, stress associated with the the super exponential at some point growth of the community, stress associated with the pandemic. I mean, I think we're rather avoiding that now, but one of the things that has been so special to me is as I advise on policy in the UK, I can reach out to a network of people I met at those meetings who have a diversity of interests, who we have a bond of trust with that survives whatever the current politics are, whatever the current flavor of the month is to means we can communicate about what actions are sensible sorry i interrupted you but i just think that can never be underestimated those bonds you're talking about
2: yeah i completely agree and that they're like with jeff you know these are lifelong so you know the amazing thing about this community was that it the people came from a, you know an amazing variety of backgrounds. I mean, I was coming from physics and neuroscience and Jeff was coming from computer science and psychology. And there were people from, you know, computer vision and speech recognition, statistics. But these weren't the mainline people. These were all people who were dealing with intractable problems, you know, and all believed that learning was would be a key to being able to unlock it, it was really being driven by this concept of, of learning, which it was in AI at the time was hardly represented. It was you know considered right a computer program. Well,
1: I think the AI community significantly looked down upon the connectionist community. I think there was a lot of snobbery around it at once. Oh yeah,
2: they, actually they didn't really take us very seriously. They, I, I remember uh, Jeff had a summer school at Carnegie Mellon, and, and so we got a lot of really great students. Well, the, the, the funny thing at, with at their first meeting. We have a picture, and if you look at the picture, it's just filled with, you know, people who are now famous, like Michael Jordan. I right? know yeah, the connection is summer school. Right. Yeah, 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 and yeah. Uh, but w- w- uh, out of MIT, uh, Richard Durbin, who uh, is, is yes. famous
1: not in machine learning, he He's was there. In Richard Durbin, knowledge. I remember, yeah, I remember. Yeah,
2: yeah. And there was uh, out of MIT came a spoof where they were going to have a connectionist cooking school. <laughs> Uh, at MIT, uh, sort of, uh, because they were the AI, the home of AI. Right, they were the, they, yeah. they were just making fun of us, but you know, uh, you know, at the end of the first summer school, the students put on a skit, and here's what they did: they simulated NetTalk. So, er, er, you know, they lined up in rows, you know, hidden units, input hidden units, and the output unit. And, and what they did was they they simulated putting my last name through the window of students in the front row. And so there, everything was going well, S, E. When it got to J, it made a mistake. Bah. And that was when the learning took place, and people would bash each other's head all the way back to the front row.
1: <laughs> Did it learn faster or slower
2: than the – I suppose it was in the, in, in, in the machines at well, the time. It, you know, <laughs> this, actually, it was the spirit of the time, which was that, you know, we were doing things that we thought would have an impact, but was still, there was still toy Examples that were, and Jeff was a master at this. He he could put together a network that could do amazing things, but it was all you know with a very small number of inputs. And I never
1: understood this until I f- I, I was I think it's kind of widely known, but I was trying to just understand the relationship. His great grandfather was the son of uh which Hinton is it? I used to be able to say it was Bull. It was Bull and uh, oh, the- also Hillary no well no bull's wife e- e- everest so george right. hinton yes. is related to the person who surveyed mount everest is that's the right. original name but everyone pronounces right. it everest charles howard hinton it's come to me uh, that's how the neurons work charles howard hinton married george bull's daughter who was a descendant of sir george everest um and charles howard hinton was was the the inspiration very probably for H.G. Wells' Time Traveller because he used to talk about the fourth dimension. He was an early science fiction writer who wrote these stories about what it would mean to move in the fourth dimension. And you, I can't read H.G. Wells' Time Traveller without thinking of Charles Howard Hinton as the main part now. But he married Bull. So this guy who could think in high dimensions – Married the child of the person who developed Boolean algebra. And after a couple of generations popped out the only person in the world that has the intuition you're just talking about. Because you had to have, we need to start breeding them somehow because he's unique in that way. Absolutely unique. Well,
2: the English are very good at this, as you know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, his, his family was kind of Charles Howard moved
1: to the US because uh, there's a story yes. there. He uh, he he kind of had to leave because he also married someone else after um, marrying right. at the same time. Right. But, but but
2: yes, well, let's move it, on. It was, actually I have to, I have two stories. One, uh, I have a recent paper that came out in PNAS, which came out of a, a National Academy meeting, but it, it, it features uh, Charles, Charles Howard. If it, for the reason you gave that he uh, he could imagine the fourth dimension, he invented the word tesseract, yeah. yeah, yeah, and and the whole theme in this this little essay is that what we've entered in is a new era of, of very high dimensional spaces, you know, in terms of parameter spaces, and that uh, I use Flatland as the intro. In other words, the this is book by Abbott in which uh, people lived in two dimensions. Your status in society had to do with the number of sides. So if you're uh, a triangle, you're like a soldier. If you're a square, you're a gentleman. And if you're a sphere, you're the king. <laughs> Victorian, it was a Victorian uh spoof. The square imagines a fourth, a third dimension, which is you know a sphere. And of course, he went around talking to people and they thought he was crazy. So he eventually they put him in a loony bin. But you no, know, here we are. I mean, if you're going back to the our early days at the Nurips meeting. We, we were imagining you know we had created the future because we imagined you know if you had enough data and if you had enough parameters, what could you do with them and and that was you know high dimensional the foundation of the high dimensional networks and high dimensional and now the statisticians are piling in because they're realizing that well
1: and I, I was at an amazing meeting with Yosher and Jan, um, organized by Denny and recently, which was focusing on the theory of deep neural networks. And I think that the new theories around the the double dip phenomenon, you know, and uh, how learning dynamics might help with regularization are just fascinating. It it was a fascinating meeting because I would say 60% was stuff we were looking at the last time neural networks were in, sort of 15 years ago. But with different people and new ideas, very exciting. But then a good 30% was like, oh, wow, we never thought that that was the answer. I noticed one of the questions is a really great question about how how do we how do we get that feel to the early community? And 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 as you say, it's such an exciting time where you're interconnecting the people. But one of the advantages of this enormous community now is you've got such a large number of people and such clever people coming in and looking at these specific questions.
2: Absolutely, it's it's it's, it's really astonishing and. You know, this meeting I was at was actually organized by mathematicians, including fields medalists. You know, in other words, uh, there are paradoxes that don't make any sense from traditional statistics of, you know, sample complexity or optimization. You know, non-convex optimization shouldn't work, right? We were told this. And, you know, well, we simulated it. According to the theory, just like the bumblebee doesn't fly, right? Exactly. (laughs) By the way, to finish the discussion about George Boole. So I had uh, I have his book, which is um, Laws of Thought." Well, that's the short title. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And What was surprising, you know, everybody thinks this is the kind of the beginning of digital computing, the Boolean algebra. But if you look at the book, half of it is about probability theory. In other words, he recognized that thought was not just logic. Thought really involves coming up with statistical analysis of data. And, and coming up with estimates. So I think the innovation in that book is is
1: more about the fact that he works out that you can re represent logical propositions symbolically, right? So he comes up with an algebra, and I think that that's part of this movement in nineteenth century maths where they start developing new algebras, right, around these sort of things. And and that as well, you're you're totally right. The probability is key, but this innovation that you can move from logic to symbols, and then you can move from symbols to electronic components is at the heart of this stuff.
2: No that 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 was uh it was clearly a precursor to, you know, a, a digital computer. And, uh, no doubt about that, but he was also the precursor to modern machine learning. If yeah. you think about it.
1: Well, I think it's it's endlessly fascinating how often these ideas are there in the old books, but they just did not have the tools. That, that And it and, and goes back to the point you were making that, that, well, they had the digital computer. So you did, you look under the place where the lamp is pointing, even if you know that can't be it. People had thoughts very close to what we do today, but they didn't have TPUs on the cloud computer to test those thoughts out.
2: Yeah, no, they made the best uh, out of what they had. There was another interesting... I think sociological reason why it was difficult to make progress that way and that is you write a big computer program to solve some problem like you know blocks world you know 100,000 lines and now how do you build on that the next graduate student comes along and you know it's it's spaghetti code how, how do you how do you make progress so blocks world just for
1: context is this AI problem where you had to move in two dimensions a series of blocks from one place to another and you had to get the order right so they were building Planning algorithms, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, planning,
2: and you know, he had a robot arm that would pick things Not up. Not a real and one, a
1: simulated one, right?
2: <laughs> no, no, actually. Oh, you did. Okay, yeah, no, yeah. I, uh, you know, this is an AI lab. The the uh, I forgot the name of the uh, the graduate student. He went on to. Uh, in any case, the 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 point is, it's, it's very difficult to make progress by writing a computer program on top of another computer program that has different formats and different, making different assumptions about you know, what the signals are. You, you need to have some unified so, way. Yes yeah, so and no. It, it, you could, what they, With programming, they formalized it with object-oriented programming. But I think
1: the point you're really driving at is that that research didn't lead to a fundamental unit of intelligence, which I'm not saying we've got today. But what we do have is this sort of notion of a layer and the way that layers can be constructed in interesting ways and different types of layers. They can be composed together, which somehow gives you quite a fundamental Way of building very creative algorithms. Yeah,
2: yeah, and, and in fact, we're at this point now where there, you know we have these deep learning nets that are uh, have very specific you know uh, capabilities in vision and speech and, and language, but what you really need to do is to integrate them all together, which is what the brain does, uh, globally integrate them, and because of the fact that they're all using the same uh, representation types of representation. Eventually, that will happen because you, you're you're integrating information using learning algorithms as the glue, and so that's the that's why we are able to build layer upon layer to be able to eventually solve the the most difficult problems, which we're we're just a, a beginning to approach, which is you know general intelligence.
1: Before we go to the questions, because we're probably overrunning, but just one last thing that you told me, which which totally stuck with me when I think you were kind enough to allow me to share your taxi on the end of a Europe's conference once. The layered structure that we just spoke about, I think the point we were talking about is in many animals, including birds, the visual system isn't like that. So if we look at the neurobiology, our visual system has elements of that, but there are other animals where their visual system doesn't even use that. And I just kind of found that mind blowing because I just felt, so this thing we've got, this thing we're doing that's doing all this stuff is not actually the way things are normally done in the brain and i just wanted to see if you could say something briefly about that because it was such a revelation to me i just assumed well all visual systems are like that at least
2: well it's a it is a fascinating story uh so it turns out that deep learning is a model for the cerebral cortex which is a mammalian invention a couple hundred million years ago you know the furry mammals had this uh six-layer neocortex but before that if you go back to birds and frogs reptiles they don't have this neocortex. They have something called archicortex, you know, old cortex. And it turns out that in, in these species today still, the, the, the highest level of, of visual processing is not the archicortex. It's the, the I'll call the optic tectum, which is homologous, similar to what we call the superior colliculus in the mammals. But it's a, it has the same layered structure. So it turned out that uh, these earlier species did have A visual system with layers, but it it wasn't the kind that we have in our cortex. It was nuclei that were connected together, which were accomplishing roughly the same thing that uh, the the mammalian neocortex, which has sort of taken over the high-level vision uh, from the super colliculus which is still used by the way to guide eye movements so it's nature doesn't throw things away it just repurposes them well
1: and that actually rather nicely ties us back to donald MacKay, who was very very interested and uh really interesting work by kevin oregan we've spoken about on the show before and eye movements and how fundamental they are but i think we should go to some questions and uh Catherine, i know there's been some coming few with a some that caught your eye.
0: Yes, absolutely. So I think that the first question, Terry, that I'd like to put to you from this raft of amazing questions that we have is specifically about your research. Um, Andrew asks, research on the brain is notorious for suffering from noisy or inaccurate sensors. How do you advance ML and neurobiology with so much difficulty in gathering clean data?
2: So there's been a revolution in the last five years. Uh, The brain initiative, Obama's brain initiative has produced incredible advances in recording devices. So we used to record from one neuron at a time. Now we can record from tens of thousands of neurons at the same time and and with very high fidelity simultaneously from many brain areas at the same time. Here's the irony. The irony is that, you know, how do you analyze data like that? You can't do it by hand. You have to use some uh, analytic approach. And machine learning turns out to be the way that neuroscientists now are being able to see things in the data that they're recording. And, you know, it's ironic that we were, you know, we were starting out, we were inspired by the brain back in the 1980s, but uh, that, that the, the tools that we developed basically are now the ones that are, are needed to make progress with understanding the brain. And, and, and by the way, you know, there are people like Surya Ganguly out there right now who are just tearing up the playbook in neuroscience. I mean, he's basically, been able to, using recurrent network models, be able to explain so many of the observations that neuroscientists are making, like grid cells in, in, in entorhinal cortex, which is amazing that, you know, this is, the Nobel Prize was given for this a few years ago, and, and now I think we have a fundamental understanding of how it emerges, you know, through development and, th- and what it's used for for navigation.
0: Fantastic. I think we've got time for one more because, Terry, I I want to respect your schedule and and all those back-to-back Zoom calls that I know you've got coming up. So Francois asks, how much do you think that we need a change in the algorithms versus just more data and more compute? Do you think that current neural networks are good enough?
2: Ah, okay. I'll tell you where we are right now. We are in the early days, equivalent in the 250 years ago at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution with the first steam engine. Right, and and uh, it, it took a hundred years for for that to be perfected, and the theory of thermodynamics. Like we were talking about, the mathematicians—they're just creating the theories that are going to create the next generation of algorithms. I actually think that, you know, we we talked before about looking under the lamppost. Well, now we have light that has stretched out over a much bigger ra- <laughs> area of a uh, very high. You know, what can you do when you have a billion? Small compute devices. What kind of algorithms run efficiently on on such a computer? Right, that that's a different architecture and, and different algorithms. And we're just starting to think. There's probably a whole universe of algorithms out there that we can't even imagine yet. So I think we, you know it'll 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 take. I hope not a hundred years, but I think we're on our way. So,
1: so Janowski's law is the law of the lamppost becoming brighter as machine learning algorithms get better and the machine learning algorithms getting better as the lamppost gets brighter. Um, and that cyclic effect is kind of what you're saying will drive innovation.
0: Excellent. Dr. Sanoski, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate having you on. Oh, you're, to you're
2: very welcome. It was really had a lot of fun. Thanks. Excellent. Thank you.
0: That is it for this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Katherine Gorman.
1: And I'm Neil Lawrence.
0: Tune in next episode.